Welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general nature. It does not take into consideration your personal objectives, financial situations, or needs. So today, well, we recently did an episode where we went back and we looked at market bubbles, and we came up with a couple lessons that we think at least can hopefully help investors in the current market. And one of those lessons was that when markets are overvalued, it's a good opportunity to put together lists of investments for times and markets are less pricey. So basically a plan. And this is perfect for Shani because, <laughs> Shani, you really like plans. I do. I do really like plans. Some might say I like to overplan. Um, but I've gotten a lot better since I've started working with Mark. And, you know, as much as we rag on each other in this podcast, Mark is hilariously disorganized and tends to balance me out a little bit. How does that not count as ragging on me? <laughs> I said we do rag on each other. Right, and but then you you acted like this was something different. But okay, we will. Uh, I said you balanced me out. That's kind of a compliment. Okay, well, I'll take what I can get. Okay. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, off the back of that episode, I also wrote a series of articles that I called a journey through Bubbleville, and I got a lot of feedback asking for more specifics about how to put together this plan. So for anyone who didn't listen to our episode on how to construct an investment portfolio, that's a good starting point. And that's because today we're going to once again focus on how our goals as investors drive every part of the portfolio construction and security selection process. Okay, so we'll talk about me in a second, but let's start with what we call plan in the world of investing, and that is an investment policy statement. So, Shani, you wrote about this in a guide that you put together called The Guide to Selecting Investments, once again, very original naming. So why don't we start off with you telling us about what an investment policy statement is? Yeah, sure. So an investment policy statement connects your goals to the actual investments. In addition to specifying your goals, priorities, and investment preferences, a well-conceived IPS ensures that you have a set review process that enables you to stay focused on your long-term objectives. And this way you can ignore short-term noise and avoid irrational decisions. Yeah. And an IPS, Shani, is an investment policy statement. Policy statement, well, yes. Just, just so people know, right? Yeah, we play the acronym. I, I felt like I did say that. Uh, okay. Well, I'm sorry if we repeated that. But anyway, <laughs> another uh, another thing you mentioned in your guide, which is really important for people to remember, is that you can have multiple investment policy statements or IPSs. And that's just if you have different goals that you're trying to accomplish. Okay, Mark. So let's start with an interrogation. What goals are you trying to accomplish by investing? Okay, so I've got two main goals. And this is fair, right? Because we on that first episode, the portfolio episode, we talked about you. So I guess this is only fair, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I've got two main goals. And the first one's pretty common. And that's just simply retirement. So why don't we start there? And, you know, basically, I, as you can probably tell from my accent, I am a dual citizen. So I have retirement accounts in the US. What? And, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I've got, of course, a super account in Australia. And my plan is to try to create or my goal is to create a diversified portfolio that I can use to support me in my 60s. So I'm assuming you've actually used the Morningstar premium goal setting feature here. Do you have a required rate of return? I, I have used the Morningstar goal setting feature and my required rate of return is 6.9%. And so that's the return I need to get every year on these combined retirement portfolios to hit my goal by 60. So two years ago? Okay. Well, we, this, this, this will be good. So we will have a long podcast of you making fun of my age. After my mother just sent you a present 
from Tennessee. It's very nice. Yeah, but we can get to that later. <laughs> um, so this is, of course, a case where you should go back and listen to that portfolio construction episode. But very quickly, Shani, what is this required rate of return? So a required rate of return is simply the return needed to get from the current portfolio value to your goal. And this takes into account the amount of time until the goal and any extra savings you are putting into your account. So let's talk a little bit about your asset allocation and how this informs the investment policy statement. Yeah. So despite Shani's statements before, I still have a long time until I'm 60. And Shawnee actually tells me that I will die long before <laughs> there. But regardless, let's assume that I go get to 60. Because there's such a long time, I do have a pretty aggressive allocation. So I have 90% of funds allocated to growth assets. So that's shares and listed property and things like that. Okay. So how do you translate a goal and an asset allocation into an investment policy statement? Sure. So an investment policy statement doesn't have to be long and complex. And remember that you've already defined your goal, you've calculated the required rate of return, and then you've selected that asset allocation target. So now all you're doing is you're just putting some structure around your security selection process to make sure everything aligns. So for this retirement uh, goal, my IPS is pretty simple. So in order to reach my retirement goal, which requires a 6.9% annual return for 18 years, I want to build a diversified portfolio of 90% growth assets by investing in a combination of low-cost passive investments like funds and ETFs and individual shares. So with both the passive investments and the individual shares, the emphasis should be on lower volatility than the overall market while minimizing expenses. So for individual shares, my focus is on building long-term holdings of great companies that are temporarily mispriced due to either overall market conditions or specific company issues. And then for passive investing, the focus is on factor indexes that include securities with characteristics like high dividend yields and things that will lower volatility. And I will use any changes in my required rate of return to then temporarily deviate from my asset allocation to ensure that I have cash available to take advantage of these situations where companies are temporarily mispriced. So I think we hit all the major elements of an IPS there, an investment policy statement, Mark. Uh, but Mark connected his goals to his investments. He talked about the types of investments he wants to buy, the types of situations he wants to buy them, and how he will monitor progress on his portfolio. Nice work, Nate. Thank you, Shani. <laughs> there's, there's a compliment, I guess. I yeah. Guess. So I do think we need to define a couple of terms in there to make sure people understand what you're saying. So we can start with low volatility. Low volatility means securities that have price movements that bounce around less than the overall market. Typically, higher volatility shares are ones that are more speculative. So lower volatility investments could be ones with higher dividend yields, large cap or bigger companies, as opposed to small caps or smaller companies and shares from developed markets instead of emerging or frontier markets. So we've gone through all of the steps. To, so let's talk about how this translates into what to do with your portfolio now. So what's your current asset allocation? Yeah, so I think I've talked about this before, but I'm close to 25% cash right now across my retirement accounts. And really, this has happened because as the market has continued to go up, I've turned off my dividend reinvestment in my accounts. So instead of 
dividends being reinvested in more shares. It's just getting paid and held in cash. And I've also sold a couple positions over the years that I didn't really consider core holdings. So all this built up cash. So while my long-term asset allocation remains 90%, I've temporarily deviated from that given market conditions. So by temporarily moving away from your asset allocation, you're essentially timing the market. And this is something we discuss. We frequently discuss the dangers of timing the market. We've seen the difference between investor returns and investment returns in Morningstar's Mind the Gap survey, it's almost 2%, which can compound and become a significant difference over time. Yeah. And you're, you're of course, right, Shani. It's really important to be very clear about what I'm doing here. This is market timing and there is a big risk associated with this. And I obviously feel that the market's overvalued and this is going to pay off for me. But over the past few years, I've left some returns on the table as the market has continued to go up. But this is where knowing and tracking my required rate of return has given me the ability to be a little more confident in this approach. I've got a 6.9% return goal that I need to try to achieve from today, but it's been coming down as the market has continued to go up. And that's why we like looking at the required rate of return, because as investors, helps us to push away from the crowd. As Mark just demonstrated, when the market goes up, the required rate of return goes down, which allows you to reduce your risk. Many investors get caught up in the mania and greed takes over, which means they put more money into the market at the wrong time. Conversely, when the markets go down, your required rate of return goes up, which tells us as investors, we need to take on more risk and put extra money into the market. The required rate of return is a bit of a contrarian indicator, but it helps us as investors to buy low and sell high. So, so it almost sounds like you agree with me, Shani. And I know this is really <laughs> uncharted territory for you. I but. really wouldn't go that far, Mark. But um, so, Mark, you've got this cash. What is the plan for it? Okay. Well, in any large market fall, as you just talked about, Shani, my required rate of return would, of course, go up. And it's impossible to know what it would go up to. But if my retirement portfolio was to drop by 30% tomorrow, the required rate of return would go up to 8.6%. Now, that is pretty high, but of course, valuation levels would be lower. And the lower the valuation levels, the more we can expect from future returns. So my plan, of course, would be to put this cash to work and get me back to my asset allocation target of 90% growth assets. So how would you do this? Well, as I talked about in my IPS, in my retirement accounts, I'm much more inclined to use collectively managed investments like funds or ETFs. And there's a couple reasons for this. First, I don't need to worry at all about taxes since these are tax-sheltered accounts. So any distributed capital gains matter less. And also, over time, I will change my asset allocation. So basically, what I can do is I can sell off some of these more growth-oriented funds and ETFs and buy more defensive assets when it's actually appropriate. And then finally, I'm much more focused on the overall value of this account because I'm going to use a 4% withdrawal rate to start taking money out when I'm 60. So this contrasts with the specific goals of my taxable accounts, which we'll get to later. So you just said that you were going to use a 4% withdrawal rate starting at age 60. We've talked before about the 4% rule and what it's designed to do. As much as I joke about your age, Mark, aren't you worried about longevity risk? You, you don't joke about my age. You say that I'm going to die 15 years before this uh, before this plan even kicks in. But. I feel like you say this a lot and there's no context to this. And it's a very long story, so I won't get into it now, but 
You're taking this out of context. Okay. You, just, <laughs> you keep saying that. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, this is where I think it's really important to look at individual circumstances. And I start pulling money out of my retirement accounts at 60. I'm probably going to have a more aggressive asset allocation target than most 60-year-olds because I actually have a defined benefit pension from my previous job. And as a dual citizen, I'm entitled to Social Security from the U.S. You have a defined benefit pension. Um, so when we combine that with your Hemingway quotes, it's hard not to call you anything but an old man, mate. Well, well, thanks, Shani. That is, uh, <laughs> that's very, very nice. Um, and, but the point of this whole thing is that a defined benefit pension plan as well as social security is guaranteed cash flow. And what that basically means, it's, is, it's a bond at the end of the day. And so that can represent the defensive portion of your portfolio. So one last question. Where does a low volatility portion come in? Yeah. So the low volatility comes in because this is a retirement account. And while I have a long time to go before retirement, I'm going to have to start thinking about how I'm going to remove volatility as I approach the time when I actually need the money. And we've talked about sequencing risk, and that's really what I'm trying to protect um, protect from here. And my transition to retirement plan when I start accessing the money is I want to take it a bucket approach where lower volatility equity investments are sold or dividends are generated, and it goes into a cash bucket that will then meet my cash withdrawal needs over the next couple of years. So we've talked at a high level about the characteristics of lower volatility investments, but do you have some examples? Yeah, there, there are a number of examples, but one that meets the standard is an ETF that our analysts give a silver rating to, and that's the MSCI World Quality Mix ETF. So that's a product by State Street Global Advisors, and the ticker symbol on that is QMIX. Quality mix, right? Sometimes it makes sense. And what this does is it mixes three different benchmarks to track quality, value, and low volatility indexes. So this is a factor-based ETF, but even though it is, it's still relatively cheap with a 0.40% annual fee. So this is an ETF with a beta of 0.91, which demonstrates the lower volatility that you were talking about. So that means if the market goes up 10%, you would expect the ETF to go up 9.1%. But if the market goes down 10%, you would only expect it to fall 9.1%. So let's go over the second goal that you mentioned. What is that? Yeah, well, so Shadi, my second goal is to use passive income from my taxable investment accounts to pay for my life right now. So my second investment goal is just that, growing income from dividends. So how does this work? Yeah, so I previously mentioned that I'm already doing this and I'm using funds from a taxable account to pay for travel, back when you could travel. <laughs> um, but my plan is basically that each five years until I reach 60 to have additional accounts start to kick off income that I can spend. So how does this translate into an investment policy statement and a plan? Okay. Well, for this goal, I'm looking at individual shares that have sustainable dividends that I believe can continue to grow faster than the rate of inflation over the long term. So there are a couple of focuses here. I want to purchase companies that have a dividend rate that is higher than the market while still having growth potential. And so naturally, this lends itself to buying securities that are temporarily mispriced due to an overall market drop or a company-specific issue. So this is a pretty different approach than I was taking my retirement accounts with their tax advantages, which means that there are different investments that will go into these accounts. So Shani, since you wrote the guide on trying to find sustainable dividends, you can probably help answer what I'm looking for. Yeah, well, there's a number of factors, including finding stocks with moats, not too high of a payout ratio, which means the percentage of earnings paid out as dividends, and strong balance sheets. But maybe it's better if we use some real examples of companies that are on your list, Mark. Um, you did say you had a list. 
Yes, I do have a list, despite being, I believe you said, hilariously disorganized. <laughs> you said, I, I did question on you on this before, but you said the list was all in your mind. So, <laughs> Yeah, I can keep things organized in my okay. mind, Shani. I don't need to actually write something down. Okay. But you should write things down. But anyway. <laughs> all right. So one company that's been on my list for a long time is American Tower. So American Tower is a company that owns cell phone towers, mobile phone towers, and leases them to mobile phone companies. So American Tower is a real estate investment trust, which has 180,000 towers across the world. And American Tower has had an incredible run of success. So they paid a dividend of 35 cents a share in 2011, and now their dividend is $4.96. That is pretty good, but let's dive in a bit. What else do you like about it? Yeah, well, our analysts assign it a narrow moat, which means they think it has a sustainable competitive advantage that will last for at least 10 years. And what's the source of that moat? It's efficient scale. So that's one of the five sources of moats that we have here at Morningstar. But Shani, why don't you tell us a little bit about what efficient scale means? <laughs> this seems a little bit like a test. Um, so efficient scale applies to companies that serve limited markets where there are a small number of competitors. So the size of the market discourages other competitors from entering. And what this means is that there's an opportunity for existing competitors. And this opportunity is to earn a return in excess of their cost of capital, which is the definition of a sustainable competitive advantage. Did yeah. I pass? You 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 passed. Okay. You you passed the test. Um, so like every other test you take. But <laughs> so in this case, American Tower spends around two hundred seventy five thousand dollars to build a tower, and rents for initial tenants are around twenty thousand dollars a year, and they have about thirteen thousand dollars a year in operating expenses. So once we factor in financing costs, this means a return of about three percent a year. However, that return jumps to thirteen percent once a second tenant is added, and twenty four percent with a third. So as the largest tower business in the US, it's very hard for new entrants in the market to come in and take market share, especially because there's a significant cost of moving equipment to a new tower. And that can be twice as high as the annual rent. You're really selling this, Mark. I feel like if this podcasting doesn't work out, you could be a BDM for American Tower. Okay. Well, that would be uh, that would make you very happy because you <laughs> wouldn't have to work with me anymore. Um, so what else do you like about this company? And that was another acronym, by the way. Business development manager yes. is what you were saying. Sorry, yes. Business yeah. development manager. Yeah. Sales. Yeah. I still say outfit of the day, by the way. <laughs> you do. You've taken that on, which yeah, is great. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. So there are a lot of things that make this company align to my strategy of steadily increasing passive income in these accounts. And that's a really important thing, right? I'm trying to look for investments that are good for me and fit my strategy. So a couple of those things, the stickiness of the customer base due to these switching costs is enhanced by long-term contracts they sign that have annual rent escalators that average around 3% in the US and are tied to inflation internationally. So one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to make sure that they could grow dividends faster than inflation. There's some protection for that. The other thing I really like is that mobile data is growing 30 to 40% a year in the US, which is expected to continue into the future. Plus, much of their new investment is happening overseas in countries like India, Brazil, and Mexico, where mobile data usage has been growing at over 100% a year, mostly from people like Shani watching TikTok all day. <laughs> And that just means there's a lot of tailwinds for the company, which increases the number of customers on each tower, which is enhancing returns on the investments they've already made. So this is obviously a quick overview of what you like um, about it. But what's the problem? Why wouldn't you buy now? 
Well, the problem, of course, is that everything I outline isn't exactly news to anyone, and both the business and the companies recognize as being a great investment opportunity, and that, of course, is captured in the price. So our analysts calculate a fair value for every company that they cover. So what's the fair value for American Tower? Yeah, so our analyst currently has a fair value of $190. This is all U.S. a share, which is 34% below what the stock is trading for, which is $254 a share. So it's not cheap. The high price is also evident when we start to look at dividend yields. Current yield is 1.9%. And while that's slightly higher than the 1.45% yield on the S&P 500, it still doesn't really align with my stated goal for this portfolio, which is to generate income. So sometimes we need to make trade-offs between current yield and future growth. How are you thinking about that? Yeah, so that's certainly true, Shani. And I don't want to reach for yield because shares with higher dividend yields can indicate a lack of future growth or even danger that the dividend is not sustainable. But that being said, in this case, I think the low yield, and this is especially considering this is a real estate investment trust, which normally has high yields or have high yields. But I think that this low yield is an indication that the shares are overpriced. So do you have a level that you would be comfortable with for this? Well, this is where we need to start talking about the margin of safety, because even though our analyst thinks American Tower is valued at $190, that doesn't mean that this is the exact price you should buy it. So before we get into what I'm looking at, why don't you walk us through the concept of margin of safety, Shani? Didn't know I was going to sit the CFA today, mate, but <laughs> I'll do that for you. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, well, margin of safety was something that was introduced formally by Ben Graham in Chapter 20 of The Intelligent Investor. And the basic concept is that even if you have a pretty good handle on what a stock is worth, you still need to build in a buffer. And this buffer accounts for imprecision in the calculation of the fair value. And that comes from the fact that humans can make mistakes and the future is unknowable. The margin of safety also allows you to sleep better as an investor. Yeah, so that's funny that you said, um, number one, humans make mistakes, but you tell me you never make a mistake. <laughs> and then you tell me that the future is unknowable, and you tell me that you saw a psychic that told you all about the future. So, <laughs> yeah, and um, I also said that it allows you to sleep better as an investor, but you don't sleep. So <laughs> that that is true. That is true. But, but anyway, given how strong of a business it is, I would like the share price to fall into the one hundred and thirty dollar range before I would buy it. So if the share price hits $130, that would provide a dividend yield based on the current rate of a little more than 3.8%, which is quite good. Yeah. And it's important, obviously, to point out that this is a pretty steep fall. So the share price would have to fall by basically half at the end of the day. But that isn't something that is completely unthinkable, given some of the um, big falls we've seen in other bear markets. Yeah. So uh, obviously, you must have more than one thing you want to buy on your list. What else do you have? I, I do. I do. Like your list of plants you want to buy, for <laughs> <Yeah>. example. <laughs> um, so yeah, I've got several other names on the list, but nobody wants to spend hours listening to what shares I'm going to buy. So maybe I'll just talk about one other problem that can arise when you're trying to put together a portfolio, and that is building a meaningful position in a holding. So in this case, you get to hear more stories about mistakes I made. <laughs> I work with you, so watching you make mistakes is just about a daily occurrence for me, mate. But um, I want everyone listening to have the same experience. So go on. That's that's very kind. <laughs> um, so yeah, I said before that I went into this COVID market drop that happened in February and March of 2020 with a fair amount of cash. And I've also said that I put very little of that money to work because I thought the market was going to drop more. Well, one thing that I did buy was a company called Constellation Brands. And Constellation Brands is a brewer and they make brands such as Modelo and Corona. I'm, of course, very interested in it since I love Mexican food. 
Yeah, you love Mexican food, but we made a booking today for lunch, and I suggested a Mexican place, and you picked a burger place instead. So. Well, it was for – so Laura works on our team, and it was for her birthday, but she prefers burgers over Mexican. So I thought I was being a good friend. Oh, well, that's that's odd that you made it not about you. But, <laughs> anyway. but in, in all honesty, um, Mark once made me pork nachos, um, and these pork nachos were amazing. It was one of the best meals I've ever had, so you're not just a pretty face, Mark. Um, but anyway, Constellation is a my, wide moat stock that is currently trading around our fair value. Yeah, were you trying to change the subject? Yes, I was. Okay, when Shani, did you catch that? Yeah, when okay. when, when Shani eats something that she really likes, she does this little food dance. It is. Uh, I was hoping you would bring that up. Yeah, it's interesting. But anyway, I'll, I'll go along with your uh, your changing the subject. Okay. So yeah, so Constellation is currently trading at two hundred and forty dollars, and I will say, and this was probably mostly luck, I picked it up for one hundred and sixteen dollars on March eighteenth, two thousand twenty. So it sounds like you got the timing pretty right since the market hit a low the next week. Yeah, no, I, I did. But the problem was that I thought the market was con- going to continue to fall. And so I only bought about half as much as I needed to build a core position in my portfolio, which was originally the plan. So, Shani, we'll turn back over to you. We'll get the quiz going again. <laughs> so why don't you talk a little bit about what is the research that informs how we should construct a portfolio and diversify. Well, we know from studies, and I love studies, that creating a portfolio of 12 to 18 stocks can remove 90% of the non-systemic risk from the portfolio, and that's a risk from individual equity holdings. Yeah, so I'm going to be a little more diversified than that. Um, but basically what I'm looking to do is build a portfolio where a core position is 5% of my portfolio. Um, And that's what I intend for Constellation to be. I just need a little bit of a price drop to get there. All right. So why don't we move on to a couple of lessons from this episode? We want to use a real life example to try and bring this process to life a bit. So hopefully this provided the framework to help build this out. But I want to touch on a couple of things about Mark's situation that drove the particular decisions that he made. So the first is, of course, his required rate of return for his retirement account. I can't stress enough how much this number drives the decisions you make on asset allocation and what goes into your portfolio. I know it sounds counterintuitive to not simply have an investment goal of having the most money possible, but this can lead to really bad outcomes. And that approach often means that you're going to swing to extremes as you go really far out on the risk spectrum when markets are up and everyone is making money, and then really conservative as you try to preserve money when markets go down. For the make as much money as possible crowd, volatility leads to bad decisions, which entails taking on more risk at the top of the market and less risk at the bottom of the market, basically buying high and selling low. The second is looking at your holistic financial situation. And we saw this when Mark talked about the social security he'll get from the US and his old man pension. (laughs) Both of these guaranteed payments are essentially fixed income investments. The same would be true of an annuity. So looking at his sources of retirement income holistically means that he can have a more aggressive asset allocation in accounts like his super that represents defined contribution plans. The third lesson is one that we've talked about a lot and that needs that is needing to put structure around the investment decision process. That's why we recommend the goals-based approach to portfolio construction that we covered in our earlier episode. And that's why we extended that today with documenting your security selection process through an investment policy statement. We are hardwired to make poor investment decisions as humans. We get greedy and we get scared. 
the more structure you have around the way that you think about investing, the more you write things down and the more you plan, the less of a chance you are to make a poor decision. Did you get me emphasizing that writing things down thing? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) But as a planner, this should really appeal to you. So Mm -hmm. that's a, that's another episode of Investing Compass. I do hope that walking through the example, even as painful as it was for me to, uh, (laughs) to share a personal one, I do hope that that was helpful. And really, obviously, it's not saying do what I do, but it's saying think through those same um, same parts of your everything that Johnny said. Think through the same parts of your plan and how they apply to your particular situation. So we would love any comments. Um, my email address is in the show notes. Any comments or ratings on um, on the podcast page would be great. And if anyone wants to guess what my mother got Shawnee, you can send me through an email and, uh, and we'll see if somebody can nail that. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.